Jeff and Andy for leading us so well. And uh, the book of Romans has been one where we've, uh, I, I hope you've, you've, you've sensed uh, kind of a deepening in your faith, a sense of strength being built as we've kind of, we've, we've made this move from courtroom to living room and talked about what that means for us. And uh, as you look at the words behind me on the wall here, you catch some of the story of Romans. And if you were here last October when we started, uh, you know, those first four or five weeks are pretty difficult when you're hearing every week, you know, you're condemned, you're guilty, you're sinful, you have a dark mind. Um, but in order to understand the depth of uh, our salvation, we really need to understand really the, the poverty of our situation spiritually. And so in Romans 1, 2, and 3, we learned how, uh, how spiritually bankrupt we were, how we were in the courtroom facing a holy God uh, and standing condemned, guilty, no excuses. It doesn't matter how good you think you are. Um, our, 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 our bad works, our, our, the sin in our lives makes us uh, stand before God and, and be condemned. Yet by faith in Christ, we go from courtroom to living room. Um, because Jesus, Jesus is the sin offering uh, for us, the, the, this, all our shame, guilt placed on Christ when he went to the cross so that any one of us who puts our faith in Christ can go from courtroom to living room. And um, oftentimes we don't understand the depth and the riches of our salvation. Um, yes, it's, it, there's this courtroom language that, that describes it. Uh, use the word justification. Or another way to uh, state it is to have right standing. Because of what Jesus has accomplished for us, we now have right standing with God. There's, there's nothing in your life that will take that right standing away from you in Christ. He, he's made it possible. So Paul uses courtroom language. He uses temple language and says that your sins have been atoned for. There's been a covering. Again, all that sin, shame, guilt transferred to the scapegoat Christ. He uses temple language to describe all that. He uses the language of the slave market, uh, the trading block where you're, you've been bought with a price. You've been redeemed. Um, he uses the language of accounting. and says, yes, you are in a place of spiritual poverty, but I'm going to make a huge deposit of righteousness into your account. So now you are rich in righteousness. And then uses the language of relationship and says that you are a son or a daughter. And along the way, I mean, the stark contrast of being in the courtroom and knowing that we had dark minds and foolish ideas and we were storing up punishment and all that, and then we get to go from there to the living room, uh, it's all by God's grace. And the word grace is a, is a concept that we're not so familiar with. We use the word a lot. We sing about it. But it's, it really is a shocking concept. And we talked, I mean, you know, months ago, we talked about this idea of justice, mercy, and grace. And the, the, this illustration of uh, you know, driving down the freeway and getting pulled over by a police officer. If you get a ticket, you, justice was served. You deserved it. If the police officer, in the kindness of his or her heart, decides not to write you a ticket, you just receive mercy. If, you, if, if the police officer gives you a $100 bill, you just got grace, right? <laughs> that, that's, I mean, it would never happen. But that's... The shocking nature of grace, that we have been given this incredible gift that we didn't deserve, which then makes you start thinking, well, I'm just going to keep speeding, I'll get more money, uh, or I'll just keep sinning so that grace may abound. But Paul speaks to that in this letter and says, no, 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 wait a minute, when you fully understand who you were in the courtroom, 
and you come to grips with the reality of what Christ has done for you, with this new life in the living room, you want to live a life of worship to God because of what he's accomplished for you, what he's done, the gift of grace he's given to you. And so we want to live this new life, but in Romans chapter 6 and 7, we learned that there's a struggle. Remember the message that uh, Brian Cadello gave where he was chained to a garbage can? Uh, you know, it's one of those pictures that stays in your head. And, uh, and so, you know, we, we walk in this new life, and yet we feel like the old life still wants to have its grip on us. And so sometimes we beat ourselves up. We're our own worst enemy at times. And yet we understand that the Spirit has been given to us, and the power of the Spirit can sever. The chain is broken. He just wants to reattach it and make us feel like we're weighed down with all this shame and guilt. But there's new life in the Spirit. In Romans 8, therefore now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. I mean, think about it. All your failures, all the mistakes, maybe the one that your wife or your husband pointed out to you in the car coming here today, or maybe, maybe the ones that you keep replaying the tapes of in your head, gone. Your sin has been separated from you as far as the east is from the west. I mean, it's all gone. You have new life in Christ. And, uh, and, and so Paul just declares this, this new life in Christ. And then, yes, there's mystery. We talked about this in Romans 9, 10, 11, about how God chooses who, who's saved, who's not saved. We had that conversation. Um, and and uh, in the context of Jewish people not responding to the gospel, but then we got to this last section of Romans where we, where we were talking about what it means to live an upside-down life, to live life with a renewed mind. What, how do we live? Now, after all that's been done for us, now we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. And now it's worship. With renewed minds, we're living this upside-down life. We've been talking about that. And now we're in Romans chapter 16. If you haven't gone there already, uh, find your way there. I'm just going to read a, a section from, in a minute here, I'm going to read a section from the middle of this chapter as we wrap up our series. Paul's going to make one last little appeal to the church in Rome. And one last parting word that he wants to speak that I want, I want to have us look at uh, today. About 26 years ago, the reason I know it was 26 years ago is because of my first year of marriage to Trina. Uh, we'll be married 27 years this, uh, this summer, but 26 years ago, it was a Saturday afternoon, Trina was running errands, uh, doorbell rang, and I went to the door and answered the door, and there was a woman uh, who, was, who had probably about, you know, I don't know, five to ten brooms that she was uh, carrying around with her. She was selling them door to door. And uh, she had sunglasses on and began to tell the story to me that she was blind uh, and that she was going door to door and selling these brooms. And the more she told her story, uh, the more I got caught up in it. My, my heart just grew soft to her and uh, just in, in her plight. And, and so I, it was pretty early on that I wanted to buy a broom, but I just listened to her tell her story. And finally it came to the point where I said, well, how much is a broom? And, and she told me the price. It was $26. Now, if you're a broom shopper or you watch Prices Right, you know that's a little on the high side, right? Uh, but, you know, I was moved, and so I bought the broom, and she moved on to other houses, and I took it inside. Trina came home, and I told her, uh, you know, I bought, I bought a broom, and she said, well, where'd you get the broom? Well, there's this woman. She was going door to door, and she was blind. Um, this is the way she makes her living, so I bought it. And she asked me, well, how do you know that she was blind? 
I said, well, she was wearing sunglasses. Uh, and she looked at me and said, Steve, you wear sunglasses. Are you blind? Uh, and I, no, but she said she was blind. And Trina started chuckling. She says, yeah, okay, you know, she probably wasn't blind. And I was like, no, probably was blind. You know, no, probably wasn't. No, probably was. And, and then she said, well, then how, mu- how, much did you, how much was the broom? And I was a husband. I just uh, <laughs> told her things like, you know, it's really not the cost that matters. It's... 26 bucks. She said, 26 bucks? 26 dollars for a broom? And I showed her the, the, you know, the, the craftsmanship involved in this <laughs> amazing broom. And, uh, and she still tells the story of the day I got duped into buying the broom. And uh, in fact, we, you know, when, when the doorbell rings now and I go to the door and someone's selling something, I usually say, hold on one second, let me get my wife. Uh, and I get Trina because she handles the, the door stuff there. Um, but, you know, we've, we've all been scammed at some point in our life, or we've all been sucker fooled into thinking something uh, was true that maybe wasn't true. And it's, um, and, you know, in, in history, that's happened as well. One of the legendary tales that's told, told from history is, uh, you know, the wars between Greece and the city of Troy. Um, you know, the, the Trojan Wars. Greece has laid this siege on the city of, of Troy for uh, 10 years and the battle is raging, and uh, yet Troy is not falling. So uh, the Greeks come up with a new strategy. Their new strategy is that they are going to uh, tell the, the, the inhabitants of Troy that they're retreating. And they're going to leave them a gift. And they construct this very large horse. It's called the Trojan horse. And, uh, and so what they do is they, they build this large horse, and they roll it up to the city gates, and uh, inside the belly of the horse, of course, is 30 of uh, Greece's finest soldiers who were hiding out in this, in this Trojan horse. And uh, uh, the, the Greeks sail back for home. The ships are, are on the ocean. They're going back home. And they're, they're over the horizon. And the city of Troy is having a celebration because victory is theirs. They've held off the Greeks. Yet there's one man, Virgil in his writing says, there's one man, happens to be a priest, who, who gives a warning. He says, I fear Greeks. And I especially fear Greeks bearing gifts. And he says, don't take, you know, don't take the horse in. And, but the city, uh, it's a trophy. Uh, so they open the gates and they bring in this Trojan horse and they're celebrating and they close the gates. And, uh, and then at night when the sun sets, the, the Greek uh, navy turns around and sails back uh, to Troy. And in the middle of the night, uh, these, these special forces from Greece crawl out of the belly of this, this horse, and they open the, the gates of the city of Troy uh, to, the, to the army that's waiting to attack, and Troy falls. Troy is conquered from the inside out. The Trojan horse has been brought inside the city, and unbeknownst to the inhabitants of Troy, they, have, they thought they were taking in a gift. They thought they were taking in something that was true, but in, in, in reality, it was a ruse, and Troy was destroyed from the inside out. Now, the reason I tell you that, that, that those, those two stories is because we get to at the end of Romans 16, Paul is going to warn the church there of this very thing. That there are those who are out there who are teaching things that are contrary to the good news of the gospel. 
All those things we've discovered, the, the, the beauty of our salvation, there are those who would want to teach something contrary to that, and they weasel their way in, and they try to get you to open the doors to them so that they can conquer you from the inside out. So I'm going to read these, these five verses in the middle of Romans 16, and you're going to hear Paul make this one last appeal. So would you stand with me as I, I read these verses? from Romans chapter 16, beginning in verse 17. And now I make one more appeal, my dear brothers and sisters. Watch out for people who cause divisions and upset people's faith by teaching things contrary to what you have been taught. Stay away from them. Such people are not serving Christ our Lord. They are serving their own personal interests. By smooth talk and glowing words, they deceive innocent people. But everyone knows that you are obedient to the Lord. This makes me very happy. I want you to be wise in doing right and to stay innocent of any wrong. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. May the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. This is God's holy word, and you may be seated. So now, if you were here last week and we looked at Romans 16, we talked about some of the names and the, and the stories and the potential stories behind the names. And as you look at those names and you look at how these people are described, you see some pretty uh, interesting descriptions. And Phoebe, in verse 2, Paul describes her as being helpful to many. And in verse 4, about Aquila and Priscilla, these partners uh, in ministry for Paul. Um, Paul says, they risked their lives for me. Literally, it means they, they rolled the dice with their lives for Paul. And then in verse 6, another description, this, this person worked so hard for your benefit. In verse 7, there's this couple, uh, fellow Jews, who were in prison with Paul. And then in verse 12, we've got folks who, who have worked so hard for the Lord. And then in verse 13, we have someone who's been like a mom to Paul. You're going through this chapter that's got all these names and these descriptions of how people have served. Why in the middle of it all does Paul then launch into this, this little five-verse diatribe about watch out, be careful, keep your eye out for these people who sort of work their way into the church and cause divisions? The reason is, is because they are the exact opposite of these people he is describing in the church. They're the exact opposite. The, these people, they want to get the gates open, they want to get into the church, and then they have some motives. One is financial gain, their own personal gain, and self-interest. Literally, their stomachs, their own appetites. It's all about them. These other names, they're, they're selfless. They're giving their lives away, going to prison with people. They're risking their lives, yet these, these people are coming who have their, their own appetites, they have their own desires in itself. So Paul is saying, watch out. Now, here's the question for us, I mean, a couple thousand years later, is how do, how do we make sure that we don't get duped? How, how do we guard our, our hearts as a church? How do you guard your heart, your mind as an individual? Or if you have children, how do you protect your kids so that they're not uh, duped or fooled into some, some uh, you know, false teaching or some uh, ridiculous idea? Let's remember that, that there are some pretty outlandish stories that are out there of people who have been duped. 
Remember several years ago, there was this, this, this group that committed suicide because they believed that if they died on a certain day, that they would then go and ride a comet to heaven or to nirvana or something? I mean, how do you go from being in church to believing that you can take your own life and ride a comet? You just, get, you just get sucked in one little step at a time. Or a guy like David Koresh who goes to Israel and comes back and tells his church that he's the Messiah. How do you go from knowing that Christ is the Messiah to then believing this guy is the Messiah and he does a bunch of atrocious things? Or some of you are old enough to remember the story of Jim Jones in People's Temple that was in San Francisco and they moved to Guyana and, and uh, hundreds of people, men, women, and children duped into drinking this cup of Kool-Aid that's got cyanide in it. I mean, how does that happen? The fact of the matter is, is oftentimes we think, well, that will never happen to me because we think we'll sniff it out. But the reality is that false teachers don't walk, come walking through the door by saying, hey, here I am. I'm, I'm the one everyone's been warning you about. And they just kind of weasel their way in. And they do it, Paul tells us, they do it in a, in, a, in a couple ways. They do it by um, smooth talk. Smooth, sweet-talking people and glowing words to deceive innocent people. Smooth talk and glowing words. Ever been to a funeral and listened to a eulogy? I've been to many, and many eulogies um, are honoring and accurate. But I've been to some funerals where the eulogies are so beautiful that I wonder if I'm in the right funeral. You know what I mean? I mean, we sometimes want to make someone's life larger than life. And oftentimes what happens with false teachers is they come in and they make you feel so good. And they want to they make you feel so large and they sweet talk and smooth talk and while they're doing it, they're slowly just twisting a few words here and there to work their way in and conquer us from the inside out. Now, how do we then guard ourselves from falling into this trap? This is, a pretty, this is Paul's last words in, in Romans. How do we make sure that we don't fall prey to this? And I think there's just a couple of errors that we need to be on the guard for. Two, two, errors that we can make, two ways we can make a, a pretty significant mistake. The first one is this error of gullibility. You know, being gullible is believing anything. And by the way, the church in Rome is obedient. I mean, they have a great reputation for being obedient. They're very teachable. They're open to learn. And oftentimes, being teachable, we, we need to differ between teachability and gullibility. Gullibility is being duped and, and fooled into believing anything. You remember the classic tale told by Hans Christian Andersen, the, the, the emperor with the new clothes? Remember that one? I'm just reading the beginning for you to get the context. It says, Many, many years ago lived an emperor who thought so much of new clothes that he spent all his money in order to obtain them. His only ambition was to be always well-dressed. He didn't care for his soldiers, and the theater did not amuse him. The only thing, in fact, he thought anything of was to drive out and show a new suit of clothes. He had a coat for every hour of the day, and as one would say of a king, he is in his cabinet, so one would say of him, the emperor is in his dressing room. 
Now, as the story continues, there's two swindlers who come into town who uh, say they're weavers, and they have this special thread that they can, they can weave this special clothing that's invisible to people who are unfit to wear them. And the king, the emperor, hears about this and decides this would be a wonderful thing. That way, he would be able to, de- to determine who is fit and unfit to rule in the kingdom. And so he gives a bunch of gold to have these weavers uh, who are swindlers to make this amazing suit for him. As the suit is being made and the, and the weavers are working the loom, uh, he sends an advisor in to check on the progress on the project. The advisor goes in and he's shocked at what he sees or what he doesn't see. The, the, you know, the, the loom is working and the guys are moving, but he cannot see anything being put together or sewn or... Uh, and so he immediately comes to the conclusion that he is unfit to be an advisor in the kingdom because he can't see. But he goes back and tells the emperor, as the emperor asks how the progress on this new suit is going, tells the emperor, it's beautiful. You should see the colors. It's amazing. And he makes up this story because he doesn't want to be found out that he's unfit for his job. More advisors go, more advisors. They all come back saying the same thing. It's a, you should see, I can't wait to see you in this new suit. <laughs> it, it's beautiful. The emperor finally shows up for his fitting day and he looks in and he's shocked because they're miming away, holding the suit coat up, the clothes up, and the emperor can't see. And so he comes to the conclusion that he's unfit to rule, but he can't let the people know. So he puts on the pretend clothes and goes out for a parade. Put yourself in his shoes. He's parading through town and he's buck naked, all right? And people are looking at him and he's strutting down streets and some kid shouts out, the emperor is naked. And the rest of the people realize it as well, but the emperor keeps going because he's convinced that he's wearing clothes that are fit for an emperor, fit for a king. I mean, it's, it's a humorous story, but in many ways, it's the reality of our lives that oftentimes we, we get suckered in, we buy into these ideas that, that there's something in our minds that, that says that something's not right here, but everyone else seems to be okay with it, so it, it must be okay. This error of gullibility is, is, is a big problem it's something that we need to, to pay attention to. And I believe one of the ways that we can pay attention to it is, is by knowing the word. By, by knowing the word of God. By immersing ourselves in the scriptures. By learning the language of the scriptures. I mean, are, are, you, are you reading the word? Do you, do you know what the word says? Because when someone comes with a new twist on something or a new command or a new idea... We should be able to test it like the Bereans did when Paul went to Berea and and preached the good news of the gospel. They they checked it out. Do you know the word? One of the um, difficulties for me uh, when I'm reading my Bible is, you know, if I'm sitting in a chair in the morning and I'm reading the Bible, and um, my mind is always thinking messages. So I read a chapter in the Bible, and I'm cutting and carving it up and trying to create a a talk out of it. It's hard to get my mind to stop and just hear and listen. So one of the things I've done recently, um, and this isn't a new idea, is, you know, I 
I purchased a CD set of uh, the scriptures being read. Not the dramatized versions with all the sound effects and you know the horses hooves and all that stuff, uh, but just just pure voice, just reading. And the drive from my house to the church is about seven minutes. And every day as I come to church and then go home after church, I'm just I'm just listening to scripture being read. And in, in, in the span, just give me an idea of how quickly. You, you can move through scripture. In a span of, of two weeks, I've listened to all the Psalms, the Gospel of Matthew, and the Gospel of John. Just have it read over me. It's kind of like being a, a baby in a family um, and, and learning a language. Does, does, the, does the baby go to school to learn English or Spanish? No. The baby just hears it. It's immersed in the language and you begin to learn a new language. That's what it's like with the Word of God. It's immersing yourself in the Word of God, and you learn the language of Scripture. And one of the ways that we can avoid the error of gullibility and opening wide the gates and bringing in the horse is simply by knowing the Word that reveals the living Word. We know the Scriptures, we know who God is, and we're able to discern what is true. And if gullibility is one error, the other error is rigidity. This is this stiffness, this inflexibility. Being teachable, uh, you know, that, that's a good thing. Rigidity is, you know, this is what I, the way I've always done it. This is what I've learned. This is the way I'm always going to be. And this is where legalism is often born and, and rears its ugly head. Uh, it's just this inflexibility, this harshness. Um, and, uh, and that's another error that we can make when it comes to knowing the truth. So, a couple years ago, was, uh, in one of our services, we had uh, a woman stand up in the middle of the service, right when I was beginning to preach, and uh, start talking out loud. She said she had a word from God for us. Um, and um, she began talking, and the thing that she said was that, um, that we were under God's judgment because uh, we ate pork. Um, now, I ended up meeting with her uh, later with, uh, with Rob Childs, our executive pastor, and one of our elders to, to explain to her from the word, uh, especially Romans 14, where it says, all food is clean. And uh, she was so uh, just adamant that we were under God's judgment for eating pork. I, I didn't let her know that my father-in-law raises pigs, because that would have probably exacerbated the situation. But you know, I was trying to, trying to be good. And, but we opened the scriptures and said, here's what the scriptures teach. She never opened up her scriptures and just, just fired away at us. And I'll, I'll be honest, we had to say, I'm sorry, you can't, you can't come back here because what you're teaching is false. It's this rigid, uh, this, I'm not going to listen to anyone. Being a teachable person is is a very good thing. We are on a pilgrimage with God. We are learning things about God. And hopefully to the day you take your last breath on earth, you're continuing to learn and experience who God is. And so we need to avoid the error of gullibility as well as the error of rigidity and think we've learned it all. I mean, Paul says, I want to know Christ. And we know that he knows Christ, but he wants to continue to know Christ. It's a hunger. And the error of rigidity sort of snuffs out that appetite of hunger for God. 
So these are two errors. And by the way, when you continue on in Romans 16 and you get to this kind of odd verse where Paul says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. May the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. I mean, where does that come from? First, we're looking at all these names and we're all these great descriptions of people. Then we're over here about false teachers. Then we're over here about the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. What is, what, what's that doing here? Well, who, who is the world's first false teacher? Satan. How did Satan get Eve and Adam to eat the fruit? Smooth talk. Glowing words. Eve, gullible. Adam, gullible. Did God really say, you're not going to die. He's just holding out on you. He just doesn't want your eyes open. Because when they're open, then you're going to know the difference between good and evil. And he doesn't want you to know that. Just casting questions about the character of God. And so what Paul says is the God of peace, which is the opposite of division and strife, the God of peace will soon crush Satan, the earth's first false teacher, under whose feet? Yours. As you test what is true, Satan's schemes and strategies are crushed and the horse isn't brought into the room. This series in Romans, we've learned a lot and my hope is that, um, that these, these truths will not just be known by you, but they'll be experienced by you, that you'll know the God of peace. And when it comes to the subject of false teaching, it's not that we have to be paranoid or you know, afraid, or, you know, wondering if the person you're sitting next to is that person. Um, don't look. Sometimes you can get all freaked out about, you know, like, oh, is, is that false teaching? Here, here's the, you, you probably heard this, but you know, in the U.S. Treasury, as they print money, you know there's all those counterfeits out there. Just like there are counterfeit teachers, false teachers. The way you know a genuine bill versus a, a counterfeit, the, the U.S. Treasury has these has the agents, and they don't go around studying all the different ways that people make counterfeits. What they study, what they stare at, what they focus on is the original. They get to know the original. They study and stare at the original. And as they do, when any counterfeit comes across the counter, they pick it up because they know what the original looks like. And for you and for me, as we walk in our relationship with Christ, may our eyes beyond the original. May our minds meditate on who is true. Because as we know who Christ is, it's revealed in the word and revealed by the spirit of God. When, when what is false appears on the scene, you will know. Because there's no one like Jesus. No one. Would you pray with me, please? So Lord, we thank you for such a rich letter written by a man who is following the call. We, it appears that he never even made it to Rome other than as a prisoner. He never made it to Spain, yet here we have this rich letter. And Lord, um, we want to be a people whose eyes are on you. We want to be a people whose feet are on the rock. 
who are obedient. And Lord, we ask and pray that you would be the foundation, that you would be at the very center of our lives. And Lord, that our eyes would be fixed on you, our author and perfecter of our faith. Be glorified as we follow on the narrow path, not turning to the left, not turning to the right, but following behind you one step at a time. It's in your name we pray. Amen.